Well, I hope you have your, your Bible this morning. I want to invite you to turn once again to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This is, if you are a guest with us this morning, this is the, the fourth mes- message that we have preached in this little section of Scripture from verse 21 to verse 26. And we are going slowly through this unit of thought because this is such a very important uh, section of Scripture. And so I, I trust that you, along with me, have been blessed, that you have been encouraged, that you've been strengthened and edified as we walk slowly through uh, these very important and marvelous truths. The title of the message this morning is The Greatest Offering. And as we take time to take a closer look at the greatest offering, I want to have you stand to your feet as we read once again this passage from Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. This is God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are delighted. We are excited to be together as the family of God. We're excited to uh, learn more about your word, to learn more about uh, your purposes for your people. Lord, as we uh, prepare our hearts to be encouraged, to be challenged this morning. I want to pray for my dear friend, uh, Ken Olson, as he is uh, preparing to preach here in just a few minutes at his son-in-law's church in Southern Oregon. We ask that you would strengthen him, that you would use him as uh, your intended vessel to encourage the people of God at this uh, church. Lord, I pray that uh, today would be a, a pivotal day uh, both for him and for this church family, that the word of God would would shine brightly for each person who has a chance to see it and also that they would uh, respond favorably to it. We pray the same for each of us this morning, that we would have a face-to-face encounter with the word of God, that your Holy Spirit would come in, pipe, in power, that you would strengthen us, you would edify us, you would encourage us, and that we would leave better equipped ready to live the Christian life, all for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. We have learned as we have labored over this section of Scripture the last four weeks that the greatest need for every person is the righteousness of God. And we have unpacked four crucial questions that have helped us to, to mine the, the great gospel realities in these verses. I want to remind you of those questions and the answers that we have proposed thus far so that we can get on the same 
uh, track, as it were. Question number one, how do we receive the righteousness of God? The answer that we took one message to unpack is found in verse 22. And it is this, we receive the righteousness of God through faith alone. It is not through works, it is not through merit, it is not through money, it is not through time, it is not through possessions. The way we receive the righteousness of God is through faith alone. This is the great message of the Protestant Reformation, that we are not saved by works, that we are not saved by rituals, that we are not saved by by any man-made system. We are saved through faith alone. The second question we have examined is, who then can receive the righteousness of God? That is also found in verse 22. And the answer to that question is that the gospel or the righteousness that is found in Jesus Christ is available for all peoples. It is available for all peoples. And so this morning, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your religion is. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is or your skin color. Your greatest need is the righteousness of God is found in Jesus Christ. And it is yours to receive for the asking today. Question number three, on what basis then can we receive the righteousness of God? The answer is found in verse 23, and this is where we spent the bulk of our time last week. The answer is simply this, we receive the righteousness of God as a gracious gift in the gospel. We receive the righteousness of God as a gracious gift in the gospel and then there's a fourth question, and we have not yet taken the time to broach the answer, and that is what will occupy uh, our time this morning. The fourth question is, by what means can we receive the righteousness of God? And the answer to this question is found in verses 25 and 26. Read it once again with me. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This morning, I want you to to take hold, to grasp on to this monumental message. And that is that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And the broad heading I want you want to commend to you that you'll see on the screen and you'll see in your notes is the power of propitiation. And before we get started this morning, I want to have you take a pen or a pencil and to look closely at the translation of the Bible you have before you. Many of you have the English Standard Version, the ESV, and you will see that in verse 25, the word translated here is denoted as propitiation. If you have the NIV or the the Christian Standard Bible or a few other translations, you will note that the word propitiation has been omitted and has been replaced by a word like Uh, sacrifice of atonement, sacrifice of atonement. I want to encourage you, especially if you are one who likes to write in your Bible. Do you know I've talked to people over the years? I've had literally people tell me, I didn't know you could write in your Bible. 
like it's illegal or God doesn't like it. Let me just, uh, let me get you off the hook. God likes it when you write in your Bible. In fact, I think God likes it a lot when you write in your Bible because you are learning, you are growing. And let me make a statement, and this may get me in a little hot water. Because I know some of you have come with a Kindle, you've come with an iPad, some of you have your phone. Oh, and I, I love the digital revolution, and there's so many things that we can benefit from. I'm, I'm actually, for years, I have been preaching with my iPad, and I like it a great deal. When I travel to Belarus in a month, I will bring all of my lecture notes, and all of my sermons will be right here. And it weighs about six ounces, and so it's a great tool However, but (laughs) if you use a Kindle, if you use an iPad, if you're using your phone, I I want to uh, not make you feel bad, but I want to plead with you. I want to beg you to get in the habit of, of carrying your Bible, your physical Bible, and studying with your Bible, and using your Bible, and writing in your Bible. And I know some people, especially younger people in the digital revolution, as it were, will say, but I can make notes in my Kindle. I can type notes. But I, I would say this, it's not the same. It's not the same. Of all the Bibles I have had since I was a little boy, all the way back to when I was like five years old and was not even converted yet, I have these Bibles where I can look through and see what I've been writing. And this particular Bible, which I've only had a couple of years, it's already all marked up, especially in the book of Romans. Surprise, surprise. Where you learn very important principles in the Christian life when you write in your Bible. One of my dear friends just a few days ago said that he had made a notation in his Bible from a sermon a long time ago. And frankly, he remembered more about the sermon than I did. That was a little embarrassing. But the fact is, when you write in your Bible you, you begin to etch things into your mind. You begin to etch things under your heart and under your soul. And then you have immediate reference. You can go back and see where you've highlighted and where you've written down notes and comments and prayers and, and principles. And so that's kind of my advertisement for using a, a paper Bible to study with. And so if I've convinced you, I want to encourage you to take your, your pen or your pencil. If the word is not translated in verse 25 as propitiation... If you see sacrifice of atonement or some other translation, that's the dominant one, sacrifice of atonement. I want to encourage you to, and you see the way it's spelled here, to write in propitiation. Because that's all we're going to talk about today is the power of propitiation. And there are four subheadings. You see the first is on the screen now that I want to commend to your attention as we talk about this very, very important word. Some of you have heard me tell the story of the phone call I got from my dear friend who's now pastoring in the Bay Area. He called me up and he, it was like uh, 2000 or 2001. The English Standard Version had just been published. And he said, have you picked up a copy of the ESV? And I said, not yet, but I've heard lots about it. it it's getting rave reviews. I heard John Piper say it would be the, the dominant Bible translation for the next 50 years. When John Piper makes a statement like that, I'm going to listen to that. And so receiving the news of the publication of the ESV, this 
might be interesting to you. The first thing I did was to look at the four places where the word should be translated as propitiation. That was going to seal the deal for me. At least it was going to begin to seal the deal. And what did I do? I went to the pages of the New Testament, to the four passages where the Greek word translated propitiation should appear. And lo and behold, much to my delight, I learned that the translators of the English Standard Version used the word propitiation. So I want to encourage you to jot that down. Notice, first of all, the meaning of propitiation. This is not a word that uh, young people are using at the at the lunch table at school. That would be my guess. This is not a word that you're going to hear on the internet. It's not a word you're going to learn about in movies, but it is a powerful New Testament word that we need to become more and more familiar with. And so look with me at the meaning of propitiation. It comes from the Greek word hilasterion. And hilasterion means this. It means the turning away of wrath by an offering. The turning away of wrath by an offering. And the word I want to highlight there is the word wrath. The turning away of wrath. The word translated propitiation means to placate or appease the wrath of God. So this morning we should be excited. We should be elated at the doctrine of. Before us, the doctrine of propitiation. Because what we will learn is that Jesus Christ has cooled down the white hot wrath of the Father. We will learn this morning that I deserve wrath. That I deserve hell. And that you deserve wrath and that you deserve hell. And that Jesus Christ, the God man, stood in my place and he stood in your place and he bore the wrath that you and I deserved. We will learn along the way that some people have tried to soften the meaning of the word that is translated propitiation by pointing to a mere forgiveness. They will say that propitiation means that that Jesus simply forgives our sins. And that's partially what the word means, but the full meaning of the word suggests the turning away of wrath by an offering. In order for us to understand what this word means and how it is relevant for you and I, we turn to the pages of the Old Testament. And I want to have you turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. To Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to look at this section of scripture in just a moment. For We will discover it in the Old Testament, the Greek word translated propitiation, or in the Septuagint, where we, we find the Greek translation in the Old Testament, it is translated as mercy seat. And that will become important here in a moment. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 3 to 5. The writer says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. We'll read about this in a moment in Exodus Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the hilasterion. 
overshadowing the mercy seat or literally the propitiatory place. Now look with me at Exodus chapter 25 beginning in verse 17 and we see this amazing description before us. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them. And the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I shall meet with you. And from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with them about all that I give you. And commandment for all the people of Israel. Let me try to explain this. The mercy seat here was a slab of gold. It was a gold that was rectangular in shape and measured approximately three and a half feet by two feet. And it was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant and it served as a a cover, if you will. And the Ark of the Covenant held the two tablets of the law. You remember the law that God gave Moses, which is a visible sign of the invisible God that we serve And the God who was dwelling among the people. On the day of atonement, and you may have heard of Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, the high priest entered the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant stood. This is an amazing scene. Incense was burned and the mercy seat was enveloped in smoke. And the blood from the bull was sprinkled On the mercy seat. I heard a pastor not too many years ago say we need to stop speaking of the blood in the church. It's scaring people. We need to stop speaking of the the bloody cross. It's, it's, It's freaking people out. Listen, were it not for the bloody cross, we would all go to hell. We need to to learn about the blood of Jesus. We need to learn about the sacrifice that Christ wrought on the cross. And so the blood from the bull was sprinkled on the mercy seat, which was symbolic of God's mercy. You have that as a a background in the Old Testament. Now turn to the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find that God himself provides the means of removing the wrath And the only way this is accomplished is through the substitute, Jesus Christ. There is a movement, and I have addressed this before, both from the pulpit and in Veritas and in Iron Man and even in personal conversations. There is a movement afoot, and it's it's been alive and well for many years now, where some are casting aside their belief in the penal substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have time this morning to look at all the various theories that have replaced 
penal substitutionary atonement. But let me say it like this in the time that we have. When we lose the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, we don't just lose a, a, a subpoint in theology. Those who would throw away penal substitutionary atonement, it's not just a minor peccadillo. It is a major deviation away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's not just a major deviation. It is a major repudiation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simply put, we need a substitute. We need a substitute. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, there's something I, I don't want you to miss. Where the writer says in verse 17, Therefore, he, that is Jesus Christ, the second member of the Godhead, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's you and I. So that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And so this is one we cannot gloss over because Jesus himself is our propitiation. The mercy seat as he satisfies the righteous demands of the law. And as we will discover here in a moment, as he cools down 10,000 degrees of white hot anger. I've had people over the years, I I remember one situation where someone came to me and they said, we're tired of hearing about 10,000 degrees of wrath. Enough. And I very insensitively said, well, maybe we should change it to 20,000 degrees. Because the the fact is, there isn't a a number that that could match the severity of God's holy wrath. Jesus himself cools down The wrath of God the Father. John Owen, the great Puritan writer in his book Communion with God says, In Christ, God has shown his righteousness. We we could just stop right there and think about that. We're going to see it later in the context and we'll discover more next week. That in Christ, God has shown us his righteousness. You want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. You don't want, you want to know about the attributes of God? Just look at Jesus. How does God respond to people? Just look at Jesus. And so Owen continues. He says, he showed that it was impossible for his justice to be turned away from sinners without propitiation. A victim who would suffer in the place of sinners. So satisfying divine justice and so turning away God's wrath on sinners. Do I hear an amen for that? That Jesus Christ is my propitiation and he is your propitiation if you're believing in his sacrificial work on the cross. Back in Romans chapter 3 verse 25. In our passage, I want you to once again notice the emphasis, as I mentioned earlier, that is placed on the blood of Jesus. Whom God, Paul says, put forward as a propitiation By his blood. John Owen continues. But God required that his law be fulfilled. His justice satisfied. And his wrath 
propitiated for sin. Nothing less than the death of his son could fulfill these requirements. And so if we would learn the real truth about sin, Owen says, we must look at Christ crucified. Apart from the cross of Christ, once again, we would endure eternity in hell forever and ever and ever. This, this is the meaning of propitiation. But I want to move forward and have you look with me at the mandate of propitiation. We have hinted at this mandate, especially in these citations from John Owen. Verse 25, we learn two very important things. We notice that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. In other words, this was a very public offering. Now, the title of the sermon this morning is it's the greatest offering, but it's not only a great offering and the greatest offering. It was a public offering. The word translated forward means to put before a public audience for consideration. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was a very public demonstration of both the justice and the mercy of the living God. The Lord Jesus Christ was presented on the cross for all the world to see. And then there's secondly, I want you to see that this is an offering that was initiated by God the Father. This is an offering that was God's idea. John MacArthur wisely says, Propitiation always refers to the work of God, not man. Man is utterly incapable of satisfying God's justice except by spending eternity in hell. You see, that, that's the only thing that we can accomplish is to go to hell. We have nothing to offer. We come to the cross with, with empty hands. We come to the cross penniless. We come to the cross as beggars. We come to the cross asking for God to be merciful. Move with me to the motive of propitiation. And I want to, to share three things here. Three very important truths that concern the motive of propitiation. The first is we've already hinted at it. And that is that Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. Some of you are experts at putting word pictures together. And, and I must confess to you that this is how I remember the doctrine of propitiation. First of all, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. If you think about, if you're a right brain person, if you, Jessica, you're a right brain person, right? Thumbs up. You think of this. If you're a right brain, brain person, when you think of propitiation, think of a great big sponge. Jesus absorbs the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God is referred to at least 585 times. Yet what I hear in Many books that I read and conversations that I have is that the wrath of God is a concept that people don't want to pay attention to. And some people want to sideline altogether. But the wrath of God is a, is a prominent theme in scripture. In the New Testament, wrath is translated as anger or vengeance or indignation. The word literally means, the word in, in the Greek means anger exhibited in punishment. It was A.W. Tozer in his great book, The Attributes of God, who said this about the wrath of God. He says, it is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. 
It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. Listen to what Tozer says. He says, God is angry against sin because he is rebelling against his authority. That is, man is rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Listen to these words from John Stott, who said, If God's, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. May I say this? God hates sin with a holy passion. God will not tolerate sin. God will not whitewash sin. God will not just uh, ignore sin. God will not turn his back on sin. He deals with sin. And so Jonathan Edwards says this, so that sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must become a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving an infinite punishment. You see his line of reasoning. If, if our sin is infinitely heinous, it deserves a corresponding penalty, which is infinite punishment. Hold your finger in Romans chapter 3 and go back to review in Romans chapter 1 at verse 18, where Paul describes this wrath of God in clear and vivid terms. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. May I just share with you a little bit of a window into my soul? I, I, when I watch award shows now, I've told my wife, I'm not going to watch those award shows anymore. They just make me mad, right? And I, I continue to watch them. And I continue to get mad. Anyone, am I just weird? Are you with me? You're just like, are you kidding me? When I watch these award shows, I think Romans 1.18. As people parade their talent before the world and deny the living God, remember that the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. I want you to see that Jesus not only absorbs the wrath of God, but he does something else. He affirms the love of God. He affirms the love of God. So the sponge illustration, Jesus absorbs the wrath of God, but he also does something entirely positive. He affirms the love of God. And here is the mystery and the majesty of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only shows his eternal love for his people in the cross, he satisfies the demands of the law. He pacifies the righteous wrath of God. Of God the Father. Once again, John Owen is helpful here. He says, Pardoning mercy is God's free, gracious acceptance of a sinner. Because satisfaction was made to his justice consistent with his glory. It is a mercy of inconceivable wonder. For God came down from the heights of glory to bring forgiveness to sinners. While at the same time exacting justice. And severity on sin. And so Jesus Christ. He cools down the white hot wrath of the father. He absorbs the wrath of the father. He affirms the love of the father. We see these realities. 
shouting from the cross of Christ. But there's a third thing I want you to see, and it's something that just jumped out at me as I was completing this line of thought, and that is the propitiation, according to Romans 3.25, showcases the righteousness of God. Look at it with me, verse 25. Whom God put forward, this public display, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice the purpose. This was to to show, and I don't think it's a stretch to say, showcase God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former Sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the uh, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Last week I mentioned my fascination with the Christian Standard Bible. And once again, I was just elated to see this as I read Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Listen to the translation. God presented him, that is Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous. If you're looking at the ESV or the NIV or the NAS, you can compare. So that he would be righteous and, listen, declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. That's exactly what's happening in this this passage. And we learned that last week, that we are declared righteous righteous due to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, look with me at the message of propitiation. And I can tell you that we're going to come back next week and, and unpack these verses just a bit more, but we'll, we'll hold some of that for next week. The message of propitiation. These great realities are where the rubber meets the road. These are where we find ourselves worshiping and delighting in God. And so notice these with me. Number one, propitiation clears the path for understanding grace. The great New Testament scholar Leon Morris says this, When the logic of the situation demands that he or God should take action against the sinner, isn't that what we deserve for God to take action against us? Morris continues, he takes action for him, and then alone can we then speak of grace. That is to say, I deserve wrath, but God sends Jesus in my place to absorb the wrath of God, to affirm the love of God. And so we deserve wrath, yet we receive grace. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And so when I go to a coffee shop and the barista asks me, how you doing? And I say, better than I deserve. And oh, that's so cute. Ha, ha, ha. It's not just a line. I'm doing better than I deserve. I deserve hell. What do you deserve? I'm getting nothing. There we go. Thank you. I deserve hell. You deserve hell. But because of Jesus, we receive grace. We receive mercy. Number two, propitiation clears the path for real life and true spiritual freedom. It reminds us that we will never face the wrath of God, even though we deserve to be judged by him. 
I can't help but jump forward to Romans chapter 5, verse 9, where Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Who is it that we are protected from in the gospel? We're protected from God, from his holy wrath. Simply put, the gospel simply doesn't make sense. Until we face this reality, we deserve to be judged. We deserve to pay for our sins. We deserve to go to hell. That leads us to our third principle. The propitiation clears the path to worship a holy God. It clears the path to worship a holy God. As I was studying this passage and nearing the end of the sermon preparation, a scenario popped in my mind. And many of you know that Dreen and I, we were married, and then I took my first church to serve at, and we served there for eight years. I was the youth pastor there, and, and both Dreen and I, we, we gave our all. You could ask Dreen. We gave our all from start to finish, and we loved those students. As I was thinking about those eight years, I think we did at least 16 retreats, in 18 years, and I mean, these are retreats where I remember one where we we, we uh, cross country skied into a cabin. This is with the ministry leaders. These are young people, high school age students, and we we headed out into the forest, and it started to get dark, and we had no idea where we were at. And I never admitted this to anyone, not even my wife, but I was scared spitless because I was like, "We have no idea where we're at. It is freezing cold." We don't know where the cabin is, and this, this is just not good. Well, the Lord had mercy, and we found the cabin and had a wonderful time. That was youth ministry for eight years. We worked, and we labored, and we, we spent time discipling young people, and I would teach and, and preach, and Dreen would mentor and teach the young ladies in this youth ministry. And I remember one Christmas sitting down with my grandfather, Reverend V.W. Steele, and he always wanted to hear. He was very, very old. He was in his, uh, in his mid-80s. And he was frail. And he was always interested in what Dreen and I were doing in youth ministry. And he would say, Davey, would you just sit down and tell me what God's doing in your youth ministry? And so I would tell him about the retreats. And I'd tell him about discipleship. And I'd tell him about the fun things that we did. And the, the crazy things that we did. I'd tell him about all these different things. And he would listen patiently and he would listen attentively you could tell he was he was interested and i'll never forget it the first time he asked me this and he went on to ask me this probably a dozen times he would lean over and with these intimidating piercing british eyes he would say i only have one question for you are you telling him about the cross are you telling him about the cross Because that's all that matters. The fun games, the retreats, the food, chubby bunny. Those things are great. But what really matters is, according to my grandfather, are you telling him about the cross? And I would tell him, yes, grandpa, I'm I'm telling him about the cross. And I need to tell him more about the cross. And he would say, yes, you do. You need to tell him more about the cross. 
Tell them about what Jesus did. Tell them who Jesus was. Tell them who Jesus is. Tell them that Jesus will deliver them from the power and the penalty of sin. Tell them about the cross of Christ. And so it is true. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, was by far the greatest offering that human history has ever seen. Jesus' sacrificial death is our means of receiving the righteousness of God. I'll put it like this. No substitutionary atonement, no salvation. No penal substitutionary atonement where Jesus bears the the penalty for, for my sin and yours. We will rightly spend the rest of eternity in hell because we will bear the weight of our own sins. I should probably tell you that this message is very countercultural. This is very countercultural, and I, I must confess that as I'm preaching, this very strong and convicting message this morning, in the back of my mind, I think, I wonder how long they'll let me preach like this. I wonder. And I, I, I should tell you this that. If the day were to ever come where the elders would say, no, 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 you need, you need to tone it down. Guess what? Bye-bye. But that'll never happen. Not at this church. We have a, a group of godly men who love the word of God. And so this is my way of saying thank you to the elders at Christ Fellowship. And thank you to the church family for not only the expectation of this kind of doctrinal preaching, but your love of it. And this is how we dig deeper. This is how we grow stronger through doctrinal preaching. We've been learning in the book of Romans about the gift that must be received by faith, the gift of righteousness that Paul says must be received by faith. And it's the greatest offering we've discovered this morning must be received by faith. But there's a challenge for those who are not yet Christians. The only way that you will ever be forgiven is to receive this great offering of Jesus by faith. The only way that you'll ever be right with God is by faith alone. The only way you'll ever be forgiven by a holy God is by faith alone. The only way your guilt will be dealt with is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. My friend Bruce Ware said this, remove the guilt and you remove the just basis for bondage. You see, we are a people who need to have our our guilt removed. We need to have the bondage removed. And the only way that can be done is by turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's the big question this morning. Have you received the greatest offering? Have you acknowledged that you have committed the sin of cosmic treason? That you have spurned the holy God of the universe? That you have lived for yourself? And this is where I, 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 I think like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, where he would plead with people. He would beg with people. I plead with you. I beg with you to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. I shared this morning in Veritas that in in the Republic of Belarus, the, the language of 
becoming a Christian, the language of I accepted Jesus into my heart is, is not a part of the theological landscape. They just don't say it. When a person becomes a Christian in the Republic of Belarus, they simply say, that, say this, I repented. I repented. We need to be numbered among those who repent of our sin and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, thus receiving the greatest gift we could ever, ever desire. For the vast number of you who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, reveals the, the multifaceted, beautiful diamond of the gospel. And as we learned in recent weeks, the theme of 2020 at Christ Fellowship is, is digging deeper and growing stronger. So I want to encourage you to do just that. It's a theme that you're going to hear about a lot. Not only from this pulpit. But in your classrooms. In your small groups. And in your personal conversations. I want you to encourage one another. Are you digging deeper? Are you growing stronger? How? By learning about the gospel. By learning about the gospel. Spence. If I were to ask Spence. Spence have you learned all there is to learn about the gospel? I know exactly what he'd say. Nope. There's still much more to learn. There's much more to learn. It doesn't matter how young you are or how old you are. There's still more to learn about the gospel. And so I want to encourage you to delight in the gospel, to cherish the gospel, to pose questions about the gospel, to apply the gospel, to live the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. My wife and I received a a letter in the mail yesterday from one of the deans at Colorado Christian University. And the question was was proposed by um, Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ. And the question was posed, it's an interesting one, who will be the next Billy Graham? It's a question that has been on my mind over the years. Who will be the next Billy Graham? Or who will be the next Luis Palau, the Billy Graham of Latin America? And the answer, according to Strobel, is this. The next Billy Graham is a vast number of people, young people especially, who are equipped in the Christian faith to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the next Billy Graham. Simple people who learn about the gospel and go into the marketplace of ideas and share the gospel and live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. And so may the watching world see a difference at Christ fellowship. May they see us digging deeper and growing stronger. It's much deeper and much more intense than a bookmark and a logo on a coffee cup. May they see us living that reality. That we have a desire to dig deeper and grow stronger. May they see us delighting in our Savior. May the sweet aroma of the gospel compel our community to come to Christ. May the sweet aroma of the gospel compel the nations to repent of their sins and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the multifaceted diamond of the gospel that we have been exploring over the course of the last month but i pray that we would uh, both see the gospel and that we would savor the gospel that it would lead us to an unhindered worship and that's how we want to close our service today by singing these songs by glorifying you by delighting in the lord jesus christ and all that he 
is accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand.